Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Our God in heaven above, we thank you so much uh, for the word that you have given to us. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, just to see uh, the, the depth of detail that you give to us in your word shows not only that you are a specific God, but that you work in our life specifically in certain ways. And for that, uh, we are thankful and we pray that as we open your word this morning, that your spirit of God, the spirit of God would open our eyes to the truths that are here and that you would apply these things to our lives and our hearts. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in the year of 1738, now kids, 1738, that was 280 years ago, almost 300 years ago, John Wesley got on a ship in Georgia to return home in England after spending two years as a Christian missionary. And on his long trip back home, you see, uh, at this time, the United States wasn't known as the United States. It was known as the New World. And it, a ship was the only way you could travel back between the New World and England. And so it took a long, long, long time to get back to his home in England. And so he had a lot of time to think about his life. And, and Wesley began to think back about his time at Oxford University where he went to school. And he remembered how he was ordained there as a priest of the Church of England. That would sort of be like me, like a preacher uh, of the Church of England. He led a group known as the Holy Club, uh, where young men every night would study the Word of God and they would do good works. And uh, eventually Wesley went to the New World to share the gospel with the Indians in Georgia. And, and having done these things and known these things about him, it was sort of surprising what he ended up writing in his journal on his trip from the New World back to England. This is what he said. He said, It is now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. In other words, it's been a couple of years since I left home, went to teach them, tell them about Christ. But he goes, But what have I learned myself in the meantime? He said, Why would I least suspected that I who went to America to convert others, was myself never converted to God. Wow. You know, Wesley had come to the realization that even for all the religious accomplishments that he had, his degrees, his associations, his morality, his works, that he lacked the saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ, even though he was a member of a church. I mean, even though he was a priest of a church, he was not a Christian. And it was not long, though, before he found salvation in the gospel of God's grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I think Wesley's experience is an important one for us to reflect on because many people in the church today are in that same situation. You know, they have read the Bible. They have given time and effort and money to the cause of religion. But they have never stopped relying on their works, their supposed goodness, if you would, and as a result have never entered into the eternal life that comes through faith in Christ alone. Now, Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand clearly what it meant to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, Paul is seeking to create in his readers, and that includes us, by the way, 
He wanted to create in his readers, as one preacher put it, a head of steam, much like a locomotive. Now, kids, I don't know if you know what a locomotive is, a train that puffs up that steam and they, they, they put the, the fuel in that locomotive, which causes that steam to build up pressure, which then turns the wheels of that locomotive and it allows that, that engine to pull all those cars behind it. And what this preacher is saying is, is that that's what Paul is doing in our lives. He's wanting to build up that head of steam, much like a locomotive builds up that pressure, to move us forward into godly living. But in order to create that steam, we must first of all understand the grammar of the gospel. So Paul, first of all, underlines uh, the being of who we are as, as Christians. And in the first chapter, Paul will go into great detail about what God is doing in the hearts of the people in whom he saves. But, but even in these opening verses, what I want you to see is, is that Paul speaks of the most basic elements of what it means to be a Christian. He doesn't share everything in, in these opening verses, but he does share a lot. And it's important that we as the Christian church, especially in the day in which we live, understand what it means to be a Christian. And you might say, well, why is that so important? Well, I could answer that in a lot of different ways. Uh, but let me just share with you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I think he captures it very well. He said, how was it that in the early Christians who were but a handful of people had such a profound impact on the pagan world in which they live? He said, it is because they were what they were. Now, that may not make sense, but stick with me. They were what they were. It was not their organization. It was the quality of their life. It was the power they possessed because they were truly Christians. That's how Christianity conquered the ancient world. And I'm convinced that that is the only way in which Christianity can truly influence the modern world. The lack of influence of the Christian church in the world at large today is, in my opinion, due to one thing. Namely, that we are so unlike the description of the Christians we find in the New Testament. That we are so unlike the descriptions we find in the New Testament. And I think part of that is, is because churches are not always pre necessarily preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many churches, they talk about come to Jesus, but they never talk about sin. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about what God does in the hearts of his people. Instead, they only talk about, well, you just need to pray a prayer. And so, therefore, people go through their lives just sort of on that basis, not really truly understanding the gospel. Well, Lloyd-Jones goes on and he goes, If therefore we are concerned about the state of the church, if we have a burden for men and women who are outside the church and who are in the misery and wretchedness are hurtling themselves to destruction, the first thing we have to do is to examine ourselves and to discover how closely we conform to the pattern and description of what it means to be a Christian. Do our lives reflect what the New Testament says about a Christian. And what I want to do today is just to use three terms that Paul uses to talk about what a Christian is. First of all, he says in verse 1 that a Christian is a saint. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints. Now, most people think of a saint as what? Sort of a super Christian? 
You know, someone who's sort of far removed from the mundane affairs of, of normal life. And if you do think that way, then that means the Roman Catholic Church has done their job well. Okay, they have influenced our culture so much that oftentimes how people think of a saint. Because the Roman Catholic Church says, they say that the saints are those few whose great spiritual achievements have caused them to be set before the church as, as both models, but also as intercessors. That because a person was so humble, because a person was so generous in giving, or whatever it might be, that they are sort of elevated to the status of, of saint. These Christians are of such a caliber, even, that we should ask them to pray on our behalf. And so under this teaching, saints are adored, they're venerated, and they are even trusted for salvation. One commonly finds Roman Catholics praying to saints instead of praying to God. And of course, such teaching is offensive to the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone and denies the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior and as our intercessor. And so we totally reject that. And I don't know of a person in this room that would agree with that view of saint. And yet, I think we can sometimes buy into the idea that a saint is someone who is of a, a higher caliber. If nothing else, they're just a more mature Christian. And you know what? And I'm not that person. But that's not how Paul sees us. That's not how he describes us. The Bible actually defines the word saint as holy ones. As those who are set apart by and for God. And the church is a group of saints. So every Christian is a saint. Paul's not talking here to a special category of Christian, but he's just talking to Christians in general. Christians are saints not because they feel different or because they act differently than other Christians, but God makes them saints. He sets them aside to a holy purpose. And I think that in biblical days, they had a better understanding of this whole idea of holy and common or holy and, and unholy. You know, we often don't think in those terms like they did in biblical days. But if something was holy, it was actually withdrawn from other common uses and it was only used in service to God. It's a, it's a lot like the dishes, kids. You know, this morning maybe you had a bowl of cereal. So you had a bowl and you had a spoon, right? Maybe you even had a container that you had the milk in. Maybe you just poured it right out of the jug. I don't know. But anyway, but those are dishes that are for common use. You're going to use those to eat out of and do things like that. But there were utensils and things like that that was used in the temple that would not be used for common use. You would never eat your bowl of cereal out of a bowl out of the temple. Okay, because that bowl was set aside to be used only for the worship of God. So God makes all Christians or saints separate from the world. He sets us aside as holy. Now, I want to make a note here that sainthood describes something, first of all, that has happened to us. Because I know in some churches, they, you know, it's, it's very easy to get that backwards, to think that being holy is something we have to try to accomplish or get for ourselves. And so, you know, the church might talk about how we need to dress a certain way or how we need to talk a certain way or, you know, there's, there's, there's all these rules that you have to do to prove that you're holy. 
But what I want us to see here is, is that Paul talks about how God has made these Christians saints. That God is the one that has set them aside even before they did anything. Now, how does God do that? Well, much the same way that he did with the nation of Israel. That's the most obvious example, I think. In, in one sense, Israel was a nation among other nations, and yet they were different. They had certain rights which the other nations didn't have. You know, they received God's revelation from him. They received his law. They understood who they were as a nation, that they were his covenant people. They understood who God was. God had explained to them and revealed to them how they were to interact with the world around them. They received from God temple worship so they could worship God and they could commune with him. The other nations had not received that. And so God redeemed Christians, um, much like Israel, to make them a separate people who were in the world, but not of the world. So God redeemed Christians to live in a world that rebels against God, but for Christians to be set apart, uh, unintegrated from the world's values and systems and goals. So sainthood is a fact concerning Christians because God has, first of all, cleansed us from our sins and he has set us aside internally. You know, holiness is not just external. The churches I just described that had all the different rules, they're oftentimes seeking for a holiness that only reaches skin deep, that only uh, addresses maybe our actions. But the holiness that God gives us is, is a new heart and he sets us aside to be saints now, of course, as he does that, sainthood also is a calling and an obligation. Those who are separated to God by the blood of Christ are called to live holy lives externally. By definition, a Christian is different from someone who's not a Christian. So there is an external holiness, but you can't start from the outside to make someone holy and it changes them internally. It's only as God changes our hearts internally that externally that we would be holy. Because God is not separating us from people. He is separating us from sin. He's, um, he is uh, not separating us from the world, but from the principles of the world. He doesn't say don't associate with people in the world. He said, you know, um, anyway, if you want, so if you want to be different, uh, excuse me, if you don't want to be different, you can't be a Christian. I, I, here again, if I might quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he says, You can't be a saint and a Christian without being separated in some radical sense from the world. This is a separation which has taken place, first of all, in our minds and in your outlook, in your hearts, in your conversation, in your behavior, in everything you do. You are essentially a different person. The Christian's not a worldly person. He's not governed by the world and its mind and outlook. Now, you may be here today, and uh, you may be a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, and you seek to follow him and to walk with him. But as you do, you sort of feel a little bit like an odd duck. You know, as you seek to follow Christ, you find yourself out of accord with your family, you're with people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, maybe at your school. You just, you just feel like, man, I, I, I think people look at me like I have three heads. Well, God has redeemed us and he has called us to lay down our life 
and to follow him. And the Bible tells us that the world didn't receive Jesus, and so the world won't receive us. We read in 1 John 3, 1, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it never knew him and never knew Jesus Christ. Uh, even John 1, 1, John, or John 1, 11, John writes, he came, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His Jews, these people, this nation that he had created, the Jews that he had set aside for a holy purpose, Jesus came and they didn't even recognize him. And so they rejected him. Jesus uh, says in John fifteen nineteen, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you're here today and, and you are wrestling with that because sometimes you just feel like I said, like I said before, you're sort of a, the odd man out. You know, that may just be because you're following your Lord and your master. Now, there there are Christians that I have met who they just try to be contrarians and they try to be different and they try to be difficult. And that's not what Christ is calling us to, you know, but Christ is calling us to follow him and there will be a difference. But it may be that you're here today and you're struggling with God's call to be set apart because you want to fit in and you want to belong and you're afraid of what other people may think of you. And if you heed God's call to be separate, to live as holy ones, as he calls you to do, that it would distinguish you in a way that you don't feel comfortable with. So you don't deny Jesus per se, but you find yourself compromising, being different. Uh, but not radically different. But Jesus said in John fourteen thirty one, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love him. And in John, 1 John two fifteen, we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There may be a temptation for us to follow after the things of the world so that we can fit in. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The things of this world are passing away, and God calls us uh, to follow him. Jesus loves you. He not only gave his life for you, but he sent another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. And he has promised never to leave nor forsake you. So trust him. He cares for you. The world is nothing more than a siren that calls in the night to draw your heart away from Jesus who truly loves you. So rest in the reality that you are a saint. A saint saved by your Savior. And then secondly, we see he calls us faithful. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. Now, in a sense, the term faithful is a somewhat unfortunate translation uh, because it leads us to believe that Paul is speaking of those who are trustworthy or who can be relied upon. There is a sense in which this definition could include that to some extent. But, but actually the word that it's used here, I think more appropriately would be interpreted is to be full of faith or to exercise faith. You, you see in other places in scripture where Christ is interacting with Thomas and stuff, 
He uses the same word and it's interpreted to mean believe. And so a Christian is one who exercises faith or believes certain truths. Paul is describing the Ephesians' spiritual status as those who believe in Jesus Christ. You are not a Christian if you're simply a a charitable person uh, or you lead a certain lifestyle of morality. You are a Christian if you believe specific and essential truths which center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you see that in Paul's writings. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul uh, talks about the things that he had preached to them. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached. Now what is it that he preached? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the twelve. And we see that he did these things according to the scriptures. So people might say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection, or I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. And Paul would say, then you're not a Christian unless you do believe these things. And it's not just believing the historical facts, but also the doctrines that are tied to these facts. That Jesus didn't just simply die on the cross, but he died for our sins. Not as a moral example or even a statement of God's love, but as a substitute to atone for our sins. And so Paul acknowledged that the Christians at Ephesus had believed these things. And later we'll see that this faith is, is, is a gift of God to all who believe in him. And, we, and I do recognize, and the reason why I say I think you know, being faithful or trustworthy is part of this definition is, as we have faith in the Lord, as we believe the things that he says and we walk in obedience to those things, then there is a sense of faithfulness that characterizes our lives. I, w- I just want to make those distinctions because I think sometimes it's so easy as, as Christians to, to uh, look at the things like saints and faithful as things that we need to attain or goals that we need to try to accomplish rather than seeing that they are actually the works of God in the hearts of his people. And so we need to ask several questions of ourselves today. Are we full of faith in the truths of the Bible? Do we know whom we have believed? Do you understand the way of salvation as it's laid out in the Bible? Do you understand this so completely that you are ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that you have? Maybe you're here this morning and you are looking for something to believe in, for someone to trust. I think that's the great uh, desire in our culture today. There was a survey done uh, with a bunch of teenagers and they asked them, what do you want the most? Now, I wish this was a Sunday school class so I could go around and ask you guys to give your input as to what you think they would answer. you know. But they didn't say things like money or success or, or even popularity. But their number one answer was they wanted someone that they could trust. You know, the the tragedy of our culture is that we seem to be in a culture that doesn't trust. You know, can't trust politicians, right? Uh, Sometimes can't even trust your parents or the police, we hear, 
or even you can't trust the church, you hear a lot of people say. And part of that might be because we are fallible human beings and we do make mistakes. We definitely are not perfect. But there is one and only one who has ever been perfect and who is trustworthy. And that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has come uh, to seek and to save us even when we lived in our rebellion. That he would come and he would not only pay the penalty for our sin, which should be, which was death, he died, but he also died to change our hearts, to make us new creatures, to, to love God and to serve him. And he calls us to believe in him. And maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you have in the past. But lately you've been living more after your own wisdom and trusting in yourself. Either way, Jesus calls you to trust him. He calls you to have faith in him and the things that he has revealed to us in his word. And then finally, the last great phrase we see is in Christ Jesus. Or throughout Paul's uh, epistle, he'll use the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Uh, Notice that Paul connects both saints and faithful to that phrase in Christ Jesus. They were saints in Christ Jesus and they were faithful in Christ Jesus. And I think often when Christians read this phrase in Christ, they simply think of believing in Christ. And they go, yeah, I'm in Christ. I believe in Jesus. But that phrase means a lot more than that. It means that Christ or that Christians belong to Jesus that Christians are united to Jesus or joined to him. The theological term is the Christian is in union with Christ. And in Romans 6, uh, and I encourage you, you can look at that this afternoon. In Romans 6, you, you see that this idea of in Christ being expanded. When Christ was crucified, Paul says in Romans 6, we were crucified with him. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose again, We rose with him. And even in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, we read that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that? That we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus at this moment. There's this vital, organic, mystical union between us and Christ that while we sit here in the sanctuary in Andover, Kansas, we are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now you're thinking, okay, how, how could that be? I think the best illustration I've ever heard about our union with Christ and being in Christ uh, what comes from Thomas Goodwin. And he talks about, in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, It talks about how there's the first man and there's the second man. The first man being in Christ and the second man, or excuse me, in Adam. The first man, it was in Adam. The second man is those who are in Christ. And Thomas Goodwin says, to imagine this, he goes, imagine, kids, if there's two giants. These two huge giants. One is called Adam and one is called Christ. And each is wearing an enormous belt around their waist. And on this belt, kids, they have like a million little hooks on it. A bunch of little hooks all over their belt. 
And you and I and all humanity are hanging on either Adam's belt or on Christ's belt. There's no third option, no other place to be. And God deals with us only through Adam or through Christ. And if you're hanging on Adam's belt, then you share in the experience of sinful fallen Adam and your entire relationship with God is through him. But if you are hanging on Christ's belt, all God's dealings with you are through Jesus Christ. Well, we know that all of humanity, when they are born, they are in Adam, so they are on his belt. But when a person comes to faith in Christ, recognizes him as his Savior, you are involved in in a very uh, um, momentous transfer where the Almighty himself takes you off of Adam's belt and he takes you over here and he places you on Christ's belt. So you now have a different head, a different mediator, a, a new representative. You have passed from Adam to Christ. And whereas God formally dealt with you through Adam and his sin, he now deals with you only through his son. You are Christ forever. You are either in Christ or in Adam And so it's important for us to ask this morning as we think about this in our own lives, whose lordship do we have? Do we profess? Whose salvation do we trust? Are we trusting in Adam, in ourselves? And whose righteousness are we depending upon? Ourselves, some other God, some false hope? Or are we trusting in Jesus Christ alone? You see, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians who are in two places. They're in Ephesus and they're in Christ. And that's the same thing we experience as well. You see, they had a relationship to the world by birth and they had a relationship to Christ through faith, through their new birth. And consequently, they were in the world but not of the world. They had duties in Ephesus to its rulers and its people. But they had salvation in Jesus Christ and their relationship with him determine their true identity, internal destiny. And it's the same for us today. Outwardly, there may be nothing special about us. You know, if I said, do you feel like a saint? You'd say, yeah, probably not. Okay, but we look and we dress and we act largely in the manner of the culture around us. We derive benefits and we accept obligations from earthly society. But God has made us holy to himself, separating us by grace for salvation in Jesus Christ. We are no longer bound up with the fate of this passing, dying world that is under God's wrath. We are in Christ by God's grace and through faith so that what is his is now ours. We do not no longer have to be partakers of this world. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you? Do you understand the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ? I think it's so interesting to watch, even in the church, I think we're oftentimes so exhausted and so driven by the priorities, even of the world, that looks like good things, but it's like we're bound up in these things rather than understanding how we have been set apart by God, that we now live in a world as Christ's covenant people representing him, serving him, trusting Christ, waiting for his return, knowing that one day there will only be a world that is in Christ, not a world that is hostile to God while we live in Christ in the midst of that world.
And undoubtedly, as, as Paul begins his letter, he would like us to reflect upon these matters, maybe like John Wesley did on his life, and ask ourselves, are we walking as we are in Christ? If for some reason you can't definitively answer yes to that, I want to talk to you after the service. But I also want you to understand that if you can answer yes to that, also ask the Spirit of God to, to show you, are you walking in that freedom in Christ as a saint, as one who is full of faith, as one who is connected to Jesus Christ? For in that is great freedom. Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you so much as we reflect upon the word that you have spoken to us this morning. That you have treated us in such a gracious and glorious way. Lord, I pray that you would so work in our hearts to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. Lord, of the high calling that you have given to us and the great privilege that we have that you would have chosen us as a people to be set apart for you. Lord, we pray that you would use our lives even this week in the various places in which you have placed us in our work, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever it might be, uh, to be your ambassadors, to be used of you. May everything, Lord, in our lives uh, draw people's focus to you. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.